In this episode, we're going to talk about facts and fictions, things about espionage, the military, the gray man lifestyle, things people think or ask questions about that they see or hear or do. They want to know what's real, what's realistic, what's a more of a fact, more of a fiction. That will cover a lot of the subjects we've talked about in the last, I don't know, 15 months or so, 16 months. That might help you out on a lot of different random topics, things from body language to surveillance to just random questions about the military. I guess it's more of trivia, but it covers a lot of things have been asked as well as even recently because of things in the news or things that have happened in the last year around the military and the intelligence community. So facts versus fiction, which things are real, which things aren't. That's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. One thing you might enjoy, this was kind of interesting. I was asked this, it was within the last year since I've been doing this podcast, why I didn't do motivational speaking? Not like, why didn't I go to a college and talk to people, but why haven't I done a podcast or a YouTube show? And this is from people who like the things I say and, and whether or not they agree with them, they see them a certain way. Why don't you do motivational talks or stuff like we see a lot of former military guys do about just motivation or how you get through the day, all those things we hear, especially from those big famous podcasters, like probably the most well-known in the military does motivational, really does motivational speaking in my mind is Jocko. Is asked why I don't do that. And it's like, well, it's not really my thing. I guess maybe at times when I train people, I do that, but it's not really my thing. It's not what I geared any of this for. The other thing too, is there's so much good stuff out there. At least I think it's good because if I agree with it, that I just don't consider doing it. I'd rather just say, well, go here. Like this guy's got some good stuff. You know, maybe there's things I've said to sound like that. But what I wanted to say to the person, like if they said it to me sitting around a campfire, I'd be like, my motivational talk's very simple. Don't be an asshole. Which probably requires explanation. But I don't do it because it's not my thing. I probably could. I've just never really considered it. So I'm not sure that that's something that... I'm going to entertain, I suppose. I would do it, though, in ways I think I've probably done it before if I was training people or giving a class, you know, something like that. Probably has happened. That's probably where you would see it. A lot of the questions I get asked are mostly military-based. And a lot of it has to do with, I say fascination, and I don't mean that as disrespectful, but people have curiosities and fascinations about things in the military, especially not being from that world. And I think a lot of it comes from the same places where a lot of their beliefs and opinions come from, which are primarily movies and television. I've mentioned that so many times, especially recently, comparing it to different things. Sometimes it's in books. And the thing about books are, even if they're written from somebody in the military, somebody like in special operations, they're typically writing about their experiences, you know, with the exception of one very well-known case, those books are reviewed by the Department of Defense or an agency if they worked with an agency and it was in there. Some things are changed or not put in there for good reason, but they're talking primarily about their experiences. So if you read a book by a guy or girl and it's from a while ago, even the stuff they talk about, one, it's their experience. Two, doesn't mean it applies to everything all the time. And three, even if it did, doesn't mean it applies now. Terms change, the environment changes, the terrain, the areas change. The work situation changes. Overall mission, not really. Overall operation and function of any of these organizations, not really. There's 
stuff that changes, but the general idea is the same. So I think that's where we get these ideas. I say that because I was asked a question about stigma, like what type of special operation user has the most stigma. And I'm not sure how to answer that. We often see things that have gone badly or told as though they've gone badly, in which people never really know the whole story anyway, especially the media. And it's about what a person has done, typically. And they tend to be publicized because of who they are. And that means either most cases, not all of them, but most cases, they're attached to a type of high-profile unit, high-profile in the public eyes, like special operations, or they're high-profile because they're a military officer, usually high-ranking like a general. You know, recently there was a thing about a guy in the Army. He was a colonel or maybe like a one- or two-star general who sent some sort of inappropriate text to a junior officer, may or may not have been subordinate, and the way the stuff reads is basically it's not that they did anything that was overtly noticeable as, say, sexual harassment or inappropriate along those lines, but any reasonable person could conclude that it was definitely going there, and I believe this guy got relieved. We hear about it because of that guy's rank. The thing is, if there was only 100 things like that that happened in the military today, I'd, I'd say if there was even only 100 things like that that happened in the Army today, that would probably be a low number. Most of them will go unreported, and the ones that will go reported, a lot of them won't, uh, anything won't happen with them, and they won't go public. This goes public because of who the individual is, just like it goes public when it's kind of the special operations world, no matter what it is. There are, of course, incidents that don't involve either, but most of them tend to be because about a person and what they're connected to because that's a story. That's a story somebody wants to tell to get viewers or to build their analytics, whatever they're doing. What I can tell you is certain resumes come as a double-edged sword when you go into the civilian world. The reason why is... If you take a guy who's a shooter, a real war fighter from special operations, no matter what type of unit he's in, there's a couple of things that happens and can be very predominant for even the rest of their life. One is, despite all the things they did, when you go into the private sector, a lot of times there's things about your career that sound cool and people want to hear stories, but don't really matter much to a job, especially now. That's why so many veterans are starting their own companies. Or they're completely getting away from that lifestyle and doing something they've always wanted to do just to be away from it. Part of it is because if you're a rappel master, or you did free fall, you know, you're one of the top CQB instructors. People don't care about that unless it's something they want to hire you for. You know, you get a guy from a unit whose bread and butter is close quarters battle or close quarters combat, depending on which term you want to use or if you even understand there actually is a difference. You know, if a police force wants to hire them to teach them some things, that matters. But that's a finite section. Other places you go, nobody cares about that. They like the fact that you're a veteran. They like the fact to know that you've spent a lot of time there, that you're going to be clean, you're going to look good, you're going to follow the rules, you know, you're honorably discharged, so you're going to show up to work early. There's a lot of positive things about a veteran, but there's things they just don't care about. So you realize that if, especially there's guys in that community, ones I even know who didn't do or follow through with a lot of college and chose not to do that afterward for whatever reason, a lot of them are good reasons, don't have too many other skills and spent their whole career, combat arms, special operations community. And although they got all these extra cool schools and stuff, they don't have any special certifications or anything that they potentially could get that 
or they have them, they don't want to turn it into a civilian role, that there's not a lot there other than the fact they were in the military for that long. And that seems like a downer. The other side to it, though, the other side of the sword, is they could just be a regular guy at a job, and they'll get introduced a certain way. They could be famous. They could be a business owner, a podcaster. Anything they do, they could do interviews. They'll be introduced a certain way, and it'll start with that special title that employers tend not to care about. And it predominantly happens with two units more than others, but... If you get a guy who's, say, a ranger, 20 years as a ranger, let's say he's well-decorated, been to war, done a lot of great stuff, people know who he is, he gets out, and he did college while he was in the military, and he decides to go work in a business somewhere. It has nothing to do related with anything he knows, but people know he's a ranger. He'll probably get introduced as being a ranger. I mean, there's been people that have done all kinds of things, have been well-known in the public eye, and the first thing that's always listed when they talk about is that special title from that community. You know, you get a guy who left the army, he was in the infantry, or he was a linguist, you know, or he was a mechanic. People typically aren't going to lead with that. They may mention they're a veteran. But if they were a SEAL or a Ranger or a Green Beret or a Raider, typically people will lead with that because of the way it sounds, the way it sells. I don't think they do it for a malicious reason. It's just kind of kind of how that ball bounces. Another question about the military in that community I've been asked many times is, you know, which special operation unit is better? You can actually find a lot of people asking this question, people arguing why, none of which have any experience in any of those worlds or even understand the differences in the training or more importantly, their missions. And a lot of their missions do cross over between some units. Most of them have one overarching mission that crosses over, which is called direct action. That's typically what we call war fighting, basically going out with guns and fighting the bad guys. They have a lot of things that are similar and completely dissimilar between the units based on what they're designed for, their tier level of operation, where they're located, the people available at the time, commanders involved in picking those people, all kinds of situations. If you ask a guy from that community who's a shooter, they're probably going to say something that sounds like, well, it's going to be a question, but it's going to sound like, well, that what? Because there are things in that community where I believe, and a lot of people from there believe, of course, I don't know all of them, would say that there's things that one unit does better than everybody else because it's a big focus, primary mission, et cetera, et cetera. So just remember that when you're comparing that or you're comparing militaries around the world, whatever you're comparing, or even has nothing to do with the subject. Ask yourself at what? Are there things that would make sense? Are there reasons why you see these units a certain way? Is it because of stuff you've digested or you've seen on the news? And it's disappointing, I guess, to some degree to realize how things are portrayed. It doesn't really affect me much anymore, but I see that. So just remember that there is something they're all better at. There's arguments for probably a few places where you could say they're more elite or more specialized but at the end of the day it comes down to what's the mission what's the operation who the people with you what training you have and are you being successful some surveillance questions i get asked one was about well really what it came down to is things we see in movies so in movies most of the time but not all of them when somebody's under surveillance good guy or bad guy one of the things you know from the story is the end result is they're trying to capture or kill that target that's not really reality and surveillance, especially outside of the intelligence community. 
surveillance is done most of the times to gather information for different reasons and to either exploit a target or to identify a threat and then figure out how you're going to deal with it, which typically is going to be way beyond the pay grade of whoever's under surveillance or performing surveillance. So that's number one. Number two is to understand that I haven't gotten into too much detail about it, but one of the things we see in movies is because it's a killer capture type situation, or at least that's what you feel like when you watch it. When people get away from public and large crowds and they get on a side street or less occupied area or bottlenecked, something like that. We, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't do that because you're going to get killed or captured. That's because that's what the story is telling you. In reality, those are the things you want. You want to get in a more isolated situation with less people, less movement. If you think you're being followed. You want to get in that bottleneck situation because a person under surveillance, especially if they know it, is really the one in control. They can actually funnel any and all people surveilling them or units, whatever you want to call them, into a point where it's easier to identify. So if you get into that situation where you're completely in control and there's less distractions, if you can force them into that. It's easier to identify how many they are, how many teams there are, who's there. Because, like I said, they're not really there to kill or capture. They're there to gather intelligence. also gives you opportunity to have a better chance at identifying them so you can make decisions to decide what you want to do. That's the downside of being a surveillance team is when somebody puts you in that situation, you have to decide what to do. And hopefully you figure out what's happening before it does so you don't get exposed, so you don't get identified. It's actually a big part of surveillance training. So it's one thing that's much different from the movies compared to the real world is that's a huge positive. So part of running things, like we talk about surveillance detection routes, is when you create them, which again, another subject I haven't gotten a lot of detail to, part of it is getting into those lower activity areas, less traffic, less movement, less people, uh, more confined to a point where you can draw people into an area even and still have a way out to where you can see and more easily identify things you think are there or definitely know are probably there in order to identify them. Most people that perform surveillance are not well-trained and they're doing it to the best of their ability over time, talking to people, trying to learn how to do it. So if you can get them in those situations, it's a lot easier to identify. It just depends on what you're doing. It's like I've talked about, you know, pulling into the store and then somebody parks there or they park across the street and do they get out of the car and it looks like they're watching you. We'll go to another place, take a weird side street, drive around behind the grocery store. You know, if you don't think, and it probably isn't a real physical threat where they're going to hurt you, you just think you're under surveillance. You can park, you know, farther away from that place or in a less, a less common place and do it a couple of times to see if that person or vehicle parks in such a way, assuming it's a vehicle where they can identify you and watch you more easier because of where you parked. So it stands out compared to last time when you were in that major high traffic area in the common place. Now you know they probably are following you. So those things are a huge benefit. They don't really portray well in the movies. I've been asked in many different ways how, sometimes how realistic, how similar things I talk about or anybody who talks about stuff like me are to that real lifestyle. It's first very simplistic in most cases and very minor. There's so much more involved in that especially people with more training experience than me that are just not things that aren't discussed or things that would be cool stories, but don't matter. The few people I've seen that try to talk about it. There's only one other person I've seen that 
does kind of what I do that doesn't do it anymore is focusing more on what skills can translate to the everyday life of a person that may matter. And more and more it revolves around things like privacy, which is why I've talked at least on the training page about cybersecurity and open source research and why it's great to learn how to do open source research to make sure that you're being objective, being unbiased and all these kind of things. It's also a great tool to use on yourself. What really is out there? What can people find out about me? You know, I talk about things about using money and credit cards and different email accounts and places you use your mail. What that's really to minimize is a, a wide range of things. Some of it's just, you know, tracking things like on your cell phone, seeing what you're doing. You know, do you really need to use a form of currency that tracks your movements or do you not want to do that? Do you want to minimize the exposure of people who could take advantage of you or people that just want to send you more junk mail or people that want to ask you for money because they think or figure out you have money. Things you can do to just protect who you are so that if some, for some reason somebody wants to find you, they don't just show up at your door. You know, there's a lot of different aspects to that. Online privacy, there's so much craziness out there with that now. Some of it goes farther into more realistic things for some people that are threat-based, like I've talked about, people that are being followed by abusive or stalkerish type people or those that might be followed like that or those that just want more privacy because they have a more high profile life you know those are the things that are more helpful things like the body language deception are just great tools to have helps you navigate conversations more easily helps you plan and prepare for important conversations whether it's an interview a negotiation or just somebody wants to sit down and talk doesn't mean you're going to sit there and blow them up or try to tell them you caught them, but it gives you an advantage in that situation. Might even just help you in a normal conversation to more easily identify what's really going on with this person, even if they don't consciously realize it. Those are very useful things. Communication is the one thing most people do everything every day more than breathing, and it's the one thing we're never really taught anything about or trained on in our whole lives. And that's why I think having these types of skills and knowledge can be very useful to the average person or any person. I've been asked a lot about movies, more intelligent stuff than military wise. I don't know if that's because people know what's really not happening in a military movie or why it's not realistic or they don't know to ask. Maybe it's because they're more fun. But the thing with like what we call spy movies, a lot of them, we don't always realize how much time period that two hours covers. It could cover several months in a story. It could cover a few days. Sometimes it's very clear. And we see a lot of things about surveillance, surveillance detection, dead drops, live drops, all this tradecraft stuff, meeting spies, all the things you're doing, you know, like James Bond stuff, Jason Bourne type stuff. And we see those in many movies. There's a lot of things that are very unrealistic about that. One is the amount of time that goes into preparing any of those activities. We call them planning and prep. And the thing is, is planning and all their preparation activities take a while. The other thing is you don't see people realistically doing like surveillance activities or any type of operation multiple times a day or in multiple countries. That's not realistic. Doing it once a day would be a lot. There's people that do it though. And it's because they need a break. You know, most people that do that stuff for real, even if they're separated from their families, which typically they are not, um, some are, is that you get to have normal life so you have normal things you think about like everybody else normal things going on you know i got this new kid i got a money issue i got this going on we have other things to deal with so you need that break just like you would in any job are there people out there that live so deep undercover they 
could potentially do that, yes, but it would be in very short periods of time. Usually those are long-term operations. The other thing they don't show, because of course it would be boring in a movie, is what happens after these operations happen, which in the intelligence community is a shit ton of paperwork that takes a long time, sometimes hours, depending on how much was involved in that operation, how much information you got, how many different types of reports you write, and that would be boring to watch in a movie. So there's a lot more to it than what you see in a movie. So one of the surveillance questions, or I guess ways surveillance questions get posed to me, have to do with very extreme situations. You know, things like active shooters or bombings, terrorist attacks, those things happen. We all know that. The odds of it happening to you are slim. doesn't mean you should ignore those facts or not know how to look for them. But what I'm going to say, I'm going to compare it to prepping the prepper world, people that prepare for disaster. There are those that their entire focus in life is focusing on extreme examples that are unlikely to happen like the Yellowstone caldera destroying the planet, an asteroid hitting Earth, alien invasion. I'm not saying there may not be value in that or you shouldn't pay attention to that if you have an interest. What I'm saying is the odds are very slim. So in the world of prepping, what you really are prepping for, preparing for, are commonly known disasters and events that could affect you in your area. What types of severe weather situations could affect you? What types of situations that are more or bigger, I guess I should say, like the like what we saw with the pandemic, that it could affect you in ways of like what kinds of things are sold out in stores. What things would you really realistically need? Surveillance is kind of the same way, especially when it's something you're just doing on your own or doing for your family. Sure, those other things are important. You want to take care of your kids. You don't want anybody to get hurt. You want to be aware of identifying threats for those more extreme situations. What are more common situations? What about being at school and Let's say you're going to go pick up your kid and the buses are lining up at school. And let's say somebody's driving in a car by the buses. Maybe they're not supposed to be. And the way they appear and the way they act, they might be either tired or under the influence of something. That's a situation to be aware of that requires a response because you saw it to react or to communicate with, say, that child to, hey, go to this other area for me to pick you up there. So when you look at surveillance for the everyday person who's not doing this as a profession, Take these like tips and ideas, just like with body language, and apply them to what are more common, realistic, everyday events where this could matter. You know, let's say you're going to the mall. Okay, there are bad things that happen in the mall. Odds are it won't, but it could. You're aware of that. Okay, that's a good thing. But when you go to park your car, think about why you want to park it where you want to park it. I mean, there's times you need to park real close. There's good reasons. You know, you could have some sort of injury. You could have somebody with you that has a handicap sticker. They need to be that close. Nothing wrong with that. But for everyday stuff, what situations would dictate that you park in a different area or more open parking lot or a little farther away? Just so that if something did happen and not like some guy shows up with a gun at a mall, let's say something happened that was an emergency call you get. You need to leave this large public area, move through several, you know, stores to get outside through all these cars get in your car so you can drive and go to this situation more efficiently and quicker. Do you want to be that close to the mall on that busy day with all that foot traffic and all the vehicles? I mean, how much time have you spent parking or trying to leave those situations? How many minutes does it take? Whereas if you were in a less occupied area or farther out by a, a quick roadway, that's going to get you that exit. How many minutes are you going to save getting to the hospital or getting home or whatever situation you need to react to that's going to save you some time? So look at more realistic scenarios that either have happened, could happen, or could be a daily regular occurrence 
you can react to. Those are kind of the ways to look at it. What's more realistic? Nothing wrong with these bigger things that some people call crazy, but look at the more realistic everyday things that matter to you that could happen. Maybe you don't always want to park like that at the mall, but maybe you know you've got a family member who's in the hospital or getting very sick. You're expecting that call. Make that a change in adjustment for that. That's probably going to be more beneficial to you when trying to use any idea or skill and put it into place. I did get asked about kind of the effects of transition. Somebody want to understand, this was a while ago, but my mom's even asked stuff like this about PTSD or just the difficulties of conforming to military life because the way one person put it was, you know, in a lot of ways when you're in the military, you're not dissimilar from a civilian for portions of your day. That's a fair statement. Here's why. When you're not deployed and you're at your duty station, outside of some different change in the schedule, a great portion of your career is not dissimilar from anybody else. You typically live in a community, whether it's on the base or off the base, it's still a civilian style type community where you do all the normal things. You get up in the morning, you drink your coffee, you prepare for work. We go to work early in the morning like a lot of people do. We start our day out with physical exercise. That's a little different. You know, we take a break, we go to breakfast, most of us at work. We go to work for a while, we get a lunch break, we work some more, and then sometime, give or take, you know, barring some specific event or need, we're getting off work probably around five o'clock, give or take an hour, depending on when our duty day started, and we go home. We got families, we got kids, people go to church, they go to movies, they got game night, all the normal stuff you see. And then the person who had mentioned this, didn't understand things like in movie, one of the movies, this guy near the end of the movie goes in the grocery store to get cereal. He's going to help his wife out and he's staring at the cereal in mass confusion. And I, it's not something that translated to a lot of people who hadn't been in the military. Part of it is because the job, especially when deployed or doing operations, depending on who you are, how prepared you are for it, how extreme your situations are, you know, how much of your life percentage wise that is compared to you know, say special operations to more of a regular military guy and the individual person. There's many factors kind of draws in what that scene did in that movie was coming back from those situations and being involved in civilian life, even if you did it before and things that just don't make sense to us anymore. That's hard to kind of explain or put into place for people to understand. It's kind of like a uh, I mean, Chris Kyle did an interview once before he died and mentioned that, you know, most people don't understand war, what it really is. And that's kind of why people don't understand that scene in the movie. I had situations like that myself. I still have times where there's things I don't understand, I get confused about, or I just don't deal with when I pull in for various reasons, sometimes anxiety, sometimes I'm just not feeling it. Some of that's probably normal, like it is a lot of people. Some of it's probably related to things I've done. You know, part of what I've done to deal with that and when I had issues with that years ago, like more than a decade ago. A lot of things I just do out of habit now, I don't even think about it. I do things at times where there's less people around or less likely to be an issue. You know, most of it's just easier. I don't have to deal with stuff. Like I don't buy groceries at one o'clock in the afternoon. That just doesn't happen. There's too many people, too many ways to get around, try to figure out what's going on. I'd rather go to a grocery store like the ones that stay open late at like 10 o'clock when nobody's there. It's just easier less stress. It's easier to park. I don't have to worry about stuff. I'm not concerned with the fact that it's night. That's just me. Some of it comes from 
experiences I had or ways to mitigate situations. It's just the things that I do. Everybody's got their thing, especially somebody who has military background or something similar. Everybody's got their thing they do for different reasons. It has to do with experiences, training, you know, how they feel about things, whatever. I think we all have those. It's just more noticeable with veterans and similar people because I talked about more, especially in the media, whether, you know, it's the Twitterverse or on the news. I was asked recently if I was going to get back into YouTube because I took some time off. They knew I was sick. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. I wanted to do it. It's easy to do as far as planning it and everything. I don't like to do it by myself. I like to talk to people, have people on there and get different opinions. And some of the stuff I do, especially if I try to teach something, there's not a lot of interaction. I like to have somebody on there to provide different points of view and the people I have on or even others I can get. I either can't get them. They have other things to do. They have their own lives. It's hard to get people on there. And I really just don't enjoy it when I'm by myself, even if you don't realize it. I like doing the content. I like that people like it and want to see more of it. But I just, I have a hard time with doing it by myself. That's why I'd, I'd rather, if I had to pick between the two, I'd rather just do this podcast. I still do have the Intel training page. I've talked to people on there and messaged with people. Some things have kind of changed as far as interaction. You know, all the places I do stuff, I have the least amount of interaction where I have the highest followers. And then, uh, the, and of course, the lowest followers. Things in the middle like this, I get the most interaction, questions, and feedback, which is good because it gives me material to work with, finds out what the audience and everybody out there listening wants to hear about more that I can provide input to, which is a big motivating factor for me. It's not the money. Like, there's an ad running right now, at least. If there isn't, then it's over by the time you're hearing this. I do get paid a little bit out of there. It's not much. You know, I do make some money on YouTube, but I don't care the Intel training page, like I just recently changed it to make it as free as possible because the subscription is by design. It's nothing I can change, but it doesn't seem to affect how will people get involved. And I'm trying to get as close as I can to a real world training experience. Granted, I can't even come close when it comes to teaching things, but to the idea of interacting with people, getting feedback, trying to help them learn, grow and develop skills, just like I would if I was in person. And the closest I've come is doing this podcast. It's part of the reason why I created that open source challenge. And I do want to mention one of the things that started on June 1st, for those of you that are listening, I'm going to start following the advice of some people and I'm going to put out some hints and clues to help you with that. So the open source challenge, you go back, it's called open source challenge is until Labor Day to find as many emails and phone numbers as I've ever used. And there's well over 10 of each. Don't be discouraged. If you only find a couple, go ahead and submit and try because there's going to be a lot of people that don't even do it. But I thought I would get out hints. So I'm going to be giving out hints across every platform I use. I've already given out hints somewhere between the Intel training page, Facebook, and Twitter. But I'm going to do some here. They may not sound like hints, but I'm going to provide things. I don't know if I'll do them weekly, but at least every couple of weeks that might help you in your search to at least narrow down what you're doing or figure out what you want. So the hints I'm going to give you now are states. You got to figure out why that matters. The states I'm going to give you is Alaska, Hawaii, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Colorado, Arizona, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, Maine, and Massachusetts. Those are your hints you get to work with right now. Don't make assumptions about those hints. Just try to use them the best of your ability for those doing the open source challenge. And we'll see where that goes. You still got several weeks to work on it. And I am still working on the prizes. So that being said, let's get back into this topic. One of the things is about money, and I've done stuff recently or 
back when about uh, traders, guys coming to espionage, how much they get paid, why they do it. And one of the things you see in money is uh, people getting, or I mean in movies, people getting paid a lot of money. That is true for a lot of situations. Uh, sometimes it's people have money situations. They need you know bills for this. They had a gambling problem. Those are always security threats we look at. Other situations is it just sounds good to see that kind of money compared to the paycheck you get. Most people don't realize in government service, you don't get paid that much. The pay scale for some jobs, and depending on how you get promoted, can be better than a lot of places in the civilian market. But they're not as much as a lot of career fields are or other places, especially when they have such minimal experience a couple of years after four or five years of college. There are benefits to it, like cost of living if you get that, if you get a housing allowance, if you get you know, food assistance. It's not really assistance like welfare type stuff, but like enlisted soldiers get a sustenance allowance. That makes your paycheck bigger. So like when I was in the military before I retired, I was getting paid about $6,000 a month, I think. But that wasn't my pay. That was housing, which changed based on your rank and where you live. There was also food sustenance because I was still enlisted. And then there was my base pay. Then there's other pays you can get. Like people that are on airborne status can get jump pay. You can get hazardous duty pay. You can get separation pay. Those are for isolated situations. So it sounds good sometimes, but not always is quite what people think. And a lot of those are military only. So it just depends on how quickly you climb up the ladder. Is it equitable to what they provide or what, service they give or danger that they're in. I don't think so. But it's not like a lot of money is there to pay them more or to pay them a lot more. Part of the reason for attrition is in many of these fields, whether they're, you know, military combat related, anything in the intelligence community, what we call soft skill, is a lot of people get enough experience, training and education. They can get out and sometimes just go back to training the people they were. They just were yesterday and make a lot more money. There's people that do four years, like in military intelligence, I've talked about this before, they do four years, maybe deploy once, don't even have any special schools, you know, and they're making 40 grand or something as a low rank soldier. They get out, apply because there's an opening and they go back to a schoolhouse where they just got trained a few years ago and teach that material because they have the qualifications to teach that pre-made material. Do they have enough qualifications, experience to answer a lot of the specific questions? No. But the way the schools are designed, that's not that's not necessarily a requirement. But they'll go in there and make anywhere from 50 to 100, 125% more than they were last week. That's a big reason for attrition. It's just that those contracts get put up by the military. Company decides how much they want to pay for a job versus, you know, government pay rates are pretty much set in stone and there's a promotion path you have to follow and it's competitive. And it just depends on how those things work out. Not really a discussion whether or not it's fair. It's just to understand that that's kind of where some of that money situation plays into. The thing is, though, in my experience, most people that are doing something that we'd call positive or negative, you know, that's in the spy world, a lot of it has to do with ideology and belief. Money's nice, but a lot of it's ideology and belief. And, and a lot of those guys that have that, we only hear the story about how they also got paid, which they were, of course, fine with, but that's not why they were doing it. Lastly, I still get follow-up questions about possibly having a training school one day. It'd be nice. I can tell you that as it stands right now, the only areas I'm seriously looking at are around western Montana. That's close to a few other states and cities. 
couple, probably one possible location in Wyoming, maybe, but it doesn't have as many advantages. Northwest Arkansas is a good location. I'm just not sure about that humidity. And for Western Montana, I've looked as far as like portions of Idaho, even over to Southwest Washington. Reason why is things we look at are like weather, extreme weather situations, locations close to populated areas that may want to receive the training. We also look for anybody else doing it in the area and see if how often they do it, how big it is versus the population. Not that we're afraid of competition. It's just we want to try to provide it somewhere. It's not else already available. So those are the kind of things we look at. As far as classes and fees, it's way too far out to know that. A lot of it will be one-day classes. There will be stuff that will be two-day or overnighter, especially when it comes to more of the survival bushcrafting, some weapons stuff. A lot of stuff like I talk about on this show will be mostly day classes. Uh, there are things I could do that could take multiple days. It would be a while before I even tried to do anything surveillance-related if I did because it takes a while to set that stuff and make sure it's going to work. Not to mention it would be most likely a multi-day exercise and therefore it could cost more. And I have to consider things like, I understand why a lot of these multi-day exercises cost so much. Some people don't realize it. One, I think it's fair, but you also have to consider, depending where a guy lives, if they have to go to a more conducive area because they're not living in a major city, most of us aren't, you have to go to that city. And if you're going to be there for multiple days, you got lodging or facilities to train in. That's going to cost money, not to mention the food and stuff, because you're not living out of your, you know, your uh, refrigerator at that time. And then, of course, no matter what you're charging for the class, people attending have to pay those fees, too. That's part of the reason why those prices get up there. And I don't plan on living like right in a major city. So that's one reason to look at. But the other things, it just depends what they are. Like when we look at land navigation stuff and orienteering is having basically a certain amount of classes that you could, you could come in and take the one day version or the two day version or the three day version and eventually want to get up to a five day version of a more extreme scenarios. But where, you know, if, if we're running a five day course, well, the one day, one of the five day course is the actual one day class. We could do at any time. Therefore there might be more people there on day one. And then on day two, there'll be a little less day three. There'd be a little less. Uh, depending on what we do. So some of it will be structured like that. It just depends on what it is as well as some more fun stuff. And we want to do things that are more family oriented, kid oriented, those types of things just to get more people involved in things like resiliency and prepping and learning skills. They want to learn that they don't normally have, or just aren't part of our normal lives anymore. They cover a wide range of topics. A lot of it's outdoors based. So there you have it. If you got any more questions, let me know. Give me some comments. Make sure you use that message app on Anchor. If you want to send me a voice question, have it put on the air, and I'll talk to you. Don't forget, in upcoming shows, I will give out more clues, and they're not just going to be here. I've already done one for sure on one of my social media accounts. It might help you out. You may not know it's a clue, but it's definitely there because you're trying to figure out a little bit more about who I am for this open source challenge, and I, I hope and encourage all of you to go. Don't get discouraged by the fact there are People listen to the show I've talked about that have experience or professional experience or active professionals right now that are just using this for fun or to learn some more skills. It doesn't matter who you are. Anybody could do this. And I'm just going to keep providing hints to make it easier. 
Thanks for listening. And we'll be back here again for you shortly right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight.